This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, MidwayUSA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled... A Cowboy in the Woods is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast 
and the Warden's Watch podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content, both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch podcast on Patreon. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a non-profit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 69, Jeff Milner, President of the Conservation Officer Canine Association, and he's from Indiana. So we get a little bit of both, John. We get a little Indiana. We get a lot of canine. Uh, he talks about the, the new association that's been kind of newly formed. I, I think he'll give us the exact dates in the podcast, but it's fairly new. They have their second conference coming up here in September, so this will be dropped in the end of September. Their conference may be just be over, so it'll be interesting to hear that. But, uh, yeah, Jeff Milner, very interesting guy. Canines, uh, as both of us, uh, we, we are so into canines. Uh, me with 4-H, uh, you know, uh, canine club, and uh, just uh, my history of raising and training German Shepherds, and yours with uh, your your dogs and your, your Met team dogs. I mean, just uh, we love dogs. I mean, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? We both love dogs. <laughs> It, well, it really does. And it comes, I mean, for everybody on the thin green line of conservation officer front nationally, I mean, canines are just, you know, they're more embedded with us than I think any other agency, whether they're a companion, they're a full detection dog, or they're a dual purpose, you know, kind of the top tier elite dual purpose detection, apprehension bite dog like Phoebe and our other mm-hmm. dogs, you know, that we, we talk so much about. And I'm, it's so good to see guys like Jeff bringing this on a national attention scale and forming up, you know, associations related to canines that we can have these conferences because, you know, we have NUIA, right. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've missed it a couple of times here the last couple of years because of COVID we're hopefully going to be back at NUIA this coming up year in 2022. But when you really think about conferences specific to conservation officers and canines, I don't see them. 
This is something that's going to blow up nationally. This is something I can see our handlers from the West Coast participating in, sharing ideas, sharing uh, knowledge, just at all the conferences uh, you know, I teach and speak at now. They're not really canine-based, and they need to be. Um, because not only for special operations, Wayne, but like you said, for day-to-day mm-hmm. conservation officer uh, work workloads, they're amazing. They're amazing on you know public relations. Mm-hmm. Um, dogs just uh, melt the ice everywhere. They warm yeah. the hearts. They cheer people up. They make a, a better day for us at work. So mm-hmm. great That's episode with Jeff. So great, great guy doing good stuff. And we all need to uh, support this one and hopefully meet you know get with Jeff in person since this was a remote recording. Yeah, and uh, get to one of these conferences as well. Yeah, no, looking forward to this one. And I'm sure our listeners will love hearing about the conservation canines across the United States and specifically Jeff Miller in Indiana. So Warden's Watch, episode 69. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm wicked excited today on Warden's Watch. And that wicked, yes, that's a New England term for all of you that don't know. Wicked is actually a good thing. To have Jeff Milner from Indiana DNR on the Warden's Watch podcast. A, our first Indiana officer. But more than that, we're going to talk dogs as we do a lot on Warden's Watch. So it's going to be the Conservation Officer Canine Association. uh, And Jeff is the current president of that. And they are just starting up and they are on fire. And I'm hoping you guys can throw some gas on it too. So welcome to Warden's Watch, Jeff, because I always say it's as much your show as it is mine. It's all about game wardens and understanding game wardens, telling stories and telling people what we do. And that's huge with what you're doing now. And that's just exciting that we've been talking before the show. So welcome. Yeah. And thank you. Uh, Happy to be on. 27 years, man. That's a long stretch. It is. It is a long stretch. There's a lot of stories in 27 years. (laughs) Yes, there is. Quite a few. And 23 as a canine handler. I think... I'm thinking that might be a record. Uh, uh, most of the people that are part of the association, I think I do have tenure on most of them as being an active handler. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, what, what a lot of people don't understand promotion sometimes comes with leaving a dog. If you're a canine handler and you want to get promoted up through the ranks as most of us do when we get some time on, that means we usually end up leaving dogs behind, which is really tough for a canine handler and somebody that loves dogs. Um, whether you've made that sacrifice, I don't know, Jeff. Uh, certainly to stay with dogs, you know, <laughs> eventually you have to. The colonel doesn't have his own dog here, at least. <laughs> yeah, and I've passed up some because uh, currently with our department, if you get a promotion, you would no longer be a canine handler. So I let him let him slide, but I like what I'm doing. You know, I... I guess I look at it as I didn't take this job to sit behind a desk. You know, I took it to be out working. So I like to kind of be where the action's at. No, I would agree. I would agree. That was my favorite part about the lieutenant. I could always go where the action was, and I didn't have to handle any of the paperwork. So, <laughs> But as an officer as well, but I, I had to do it within my own parameters. Uh, <laughs> And you got quite the wall. The background uh, is just uh, where we're, you guys can see us on uh, a Patreon. Uh, Jeff's got, and I'm assuming this is your home, and it's just a, a wildlife extravaganza, as a lot of game wardens' houses are. Uh, yeah, most of them are, would be, I have four children. Three of them were active hunters, and most of those are their first kills, minus the duck. The duck was actually a, a retrieve on, well, it was the final retrieve of one of my duck hunting partners 
but all the other critters pretty well are, you know, my sons or daughters first kills. Uh, that's, that's just precious. Cause those are the best memories we have of my son's first bear. We had a full mount done of her. So small sow and two cubs that I actually, uh, found during my tenure. One was a roadkill. One a biologist had found when he was going in to check on a moose and, uh, he came back in his tracks. There was a, a little bear cub that had died, uh, right there of just, just starved to death and died in his tracks. So, um, so I have a sow, which is my, my son shot, and two cubs to go with it. So that's that's just a, a hallmark. But, yeah, it's hard when your kid shoots their first animal and they want it, you know, mounted. And then they say, yeah, how about a full mount, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> but those are the best memories. So that, that that's awesome that that is, is up there. So so that buck's a first, one of your first for your kids, because that looks like a pretty nice yeah. buck on the wall. It is, and actually, I have one of my own that's at the taxidermist now that is ready. I just haven't went and picked it up yet. Awesome. So we're about ready to get another buck up there. Awesome. It'll balance the room well. I will. So let's go back and uh, talk about when you started and maybe when you got into the canine division, and then we'll work up to the Canines for Conservation Officer Association, which uh, is presently ongoing and strong, and uh, you're doing a lot of work in that. But I'd like to get back to the roots. Uh, game warden, did you did you always want to be a game warden? Well, definitely. It was always an interest to me, but in high school uh, is when it really, probably actually junior high is when it really kicked in. Um, matter of fact, prior to having my license, we had a local conservation officer slash I'm all right with game warden. Um, you know, he lived about a mile through the woods from me, uh, me and one of my neighbors hiked through the woods over to his house. I knock on his door. I'm wanting to say I was 13, maybe 14. And it's like, uh, officer Spain hour. How do I become a conservation officer? You know? So, so definitely I was young when, when the passion hit and, uh, you know, luckily, you know, after every report I done on a career in high school was about becoming a conservation officer. And luckily here in Indiana, we had a university that actually had conservation law enforcement. So that's was my college. And, and I was very fortunate that got on right away when I was 21. Wow. That's, that, that's great. And that's a, it's a good way to start. And that's a, the, the initiative to go over, knock on the game warden's door, conservation officer, uh, and say, how do I become a game warden? I, at that moment, I think, uh, if I was looking down at a 14 year old doing that, I'd be like, oh, this one's going to be a game warden for sure. Cause he's already got the stamina to come up and knock on my door. Cause that takes a little initiative at that age. And then just to, to carry on that, that love and that passion. So for sure. So that's, that's great. So when you got hired, um, you, you jumped right into the canine thing, huh? Uh, well, within the first couple years, um, well, once I got hired, I got big into doing hunt tests with labs. And it all started from, because like you, I started out, mm. most of my dogs as a kid were shepherds, yeah. uh, which canine world is the gateway dog. Uh, yes. But, but then... Uh, I got involved by signing their field trial permit, got involved with a club called Hoosier Hunting Retriever Club and got my first lab. Uh, one lab turned into 11 labs and was traveling around doing hunt tests all over the Midwest. And so I thought, man, these dogs are amazing. We don't have a canine program. I'm going to research and see what's out there. Well, at the time, there was only nine other 
fish and wildlife agencies that had canine programs. So I got the research from those nine states and proposed it. Well, obviously it got shot down. Um, but a few years later, we had an administration change and lo and behold, we got it, got it up and running. Mm. And it's been running ever since. Yes. Yeah. We started in 1997 and we're still going strong today. So 23, 23 years of, of having a program where some states have, have had a program fizzles away uh, and they have come back. Uh, There's several of those states, but right now uh, states, it seems to be a trend states starting a program. Mm. And, And a good trend because you and I both know, and we talked about this earlier that, Dogs are an introduction. Dogs are that uh, segue uh, to people, that catalyst uh, to to educate them, to break down barriers. Uh, even if it's not a trained dog, I, I love the idea California has that canine companion that they just certify the dogs that they can ride with you. And what an ambassador in itself. Uh, I think that's pretty cool, and to have a canine program built on top of that. But just uh, to have a program and, and, and you know, break down that thing because it's a big public relations plus. Uh, because, I mean, you get a game warden and a dog. You know, it's just if, you, if you're going to do a public speaking, if you're going to do a demonstration, it just uh, it helps the department so much give our message in this world of digitalness in this world of doing zoom meetings we need to connect even more so than ever and those people want to see those dogs they want to see them work they want to pat them they want them to kiss them and uh, it's just uh, uh, everybody seems to like dogs so I, I think for every department nationwide if just for that reason uh they should have a canine program i just uh, and, yes i would I'd 100% agree. It's, um, you know, besides the law enforcement aspect, the public demonstrations or the events you can get into to reach non-traditional audience is way overlooked by a lot of administrations. It gets you in to maybe the public school that didn't allow, Mm. you know, the game before. Uh, It lets us reach those non-traditional audience, which benefits everyone. Right. And people connect to the outdoors. You know, when you talk about a a game warden coming in, it's different because we're talking about conservation. We're talking about, you know, not necessarily preserving, but extending um, natural resources and catching those that violate those rules. Because I always tell people rules aren't made up uh, just because we feel like it. There's a purpose behind most of our rules. I'm not going to say all of them. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, <laughs> but uh, most of the rules have purpose and it's to, you know, con- conserve and have resources for everybody to enjoy to use, whether you're a wildlife watcher, whether you're a hunter, whether you're a fisherman, it, it's, it's, those rules are there so we can have this resource for everybody. And do- dogs bridge that message, too, because, hey, the dog gets in because, the, hey, there's, there's a canine handler go. But then we can send our message to, hey, this is the outdoors. And with this COVID, everybody's running to the outdoors. And this is the time to grab them. This is the time to say, hey, stay here. Stay here. Don't go back to where you were. Stay here. Enjoy what we have and become part of us. Not try to acclimate us, but become part of what we enjoy. So, and I think you're doing that with dogs. And I, and I really appreciate it. Your, your first dog. Let, let's talk about him. Or her. Well, it, it was her. It, it was, was her. actually her. <laughs> Journey was my first partner. Of course, I am actually on partner number four. Uh, but yeah, Journey was was quite an ambassador to 
to our program. Um, I could tell you in a one hour podcast, I can talk 10 hours about the cases that, that she made. Um, you know, I, I was wanting to get to 400 apprehensions with her before she retired, but I ended at 392. Oh, so, wow. um, so she, she was actually, uh, quite special, you know, and it was quite, the and journey. that really helped, really helped, uh, spur on our program for expansion. Uh, within two years, we went from two dogs statewide to nine. Uh, so we had quick expansion and now currently Indiana, we're the third largest, uh, fish and wildlife agency canine program at 13 throughout the state. And not the biggest state either. So that, that's a pretty good ratio. And how many offices does Indiana have? If we're at full staff, which we're not right now, 214 is what we're slated for. Okay. But we are down in, I think, the one upper 170s right now. We have several vacancies. Mm-hmm. I would say. so. But you have a pretty good dispersal throughout your state, I'm assuming, of canine handlers. Yes. Every, every officer should have access if the officer is available. Uh, response time should be within an hour. Wow. Uh, Indiana's nice. uh, broken into 10 different districts, and we have at least one canine handler in each district. Uh, we have a couple districts, obviously, that have multiple canines, mm-hmm. but we are dispersed uh, fairly evenly throughout the state. And are you breed specific, uh, all Labradors or? Uh, we use sporting breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of our dogs are floppy ear dogs, but we do have a mixture, uh, primarily Labrador retrievers. We do have three German short hair pointers now mm-hmm. and one golden retriever. Nice. And as a trainer, um, do you see the differences in those breeds? Each breed brings a different uh, aspect to the table. You know, there's a big difference between training Labrador retrievers and German short hair pointers. Mm. You know, uh, some of it has to do with speed. Uh, obviously, the German short hairs like to cover vast distances in a hurry where labs are a little more methodical. Um, it's harder to read expressions on a German short short hair pointer, uh, or GSPs, I'll call them from now on. They just don't show emotions where a lab, you look at them and they smile at you, yeah. <laughs> you know, and let you know, I just found something here, <laughs> you know? So it's, so between the breeds there, there definitely are some differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, the ladies that I actually, she's a 4-H leader in my 4-H dog group and she had hunting hounds her whole life. And she just got a German wire hair pointer. And after about a year, she's like, uh, Wayne, these wire hair pointers, they're, I said, a lot smarter than the hounds. <laughs> She's like, yeah, it's a whole different dog and it's a whole different breed bred for a whole different purpose. And it's funny because you're right. I, I, I watch my German shepherd think he can open doorknobs. He has learned to twi- grab it and twist and pop it with his nose. And he's just the first time he did it just blew my mind that he could open a door. But it was something he wanted to. So he learned it. And he thinks, I, t- I tell my son, because we have a German wire hair pointer, I said, watch when you throw the ball. Watch what Cutter does, my German Shepherd, compared to your dog. His dog takes off like a bolt of lightning when he still has it in his hand, and Cutter's looking at him because he still has the ball in his hand and hasn't left, and he's not going not to leave until that ball leaves. Uh, some of that's experience. You know, he's an older dog, so he knows that people do that. But uh, we still haven't, she has, still hasn't figured that out after three years, so... <laughs> But it's just different yeah. breeds are different, just like people are different. We have different skill sets, and it's kind of uh, – got to figure that out, don't you, and see what's what they do best at. 
Right. And we, we've had some other breeds over the years. We've had Chesapeake Bays. We actually have had German wire hair pointers. Uh, she actually had a short career due to a sudden death of a medical complication. But, uh, but yeah, different breeds bring different things to the table. Mm-hmm. No doubt. And I think you talked about the speed of the, the German short hairs, uh, the methodicalness, I think you used the word for the laboratory and the, the personality too. Because, uh, yeah, the, I, I just, you like it. You got to watch the birdiness of, uh, for those that don't know, when the dog's tail starts going, the birdiness, I'm sure that's the key with the, the short hairs. Uh, well, short hairs are a little different. Of course, with short hairs, a lot of times it depends on the size of the tail. You know, <laughs> some, some of them are not so short. Uh, there's not much tail there. Um, you know, some are longer. But, yeah, there's there's differences for sure. The nice thing about the the GSPs is they have a natural alert built in. You know, they're going to, when they find whatever we're looking for, whether it's a gun, spent shell casings, their point lets you know, here it is. You know, there's yeah. no doubt there that Not they that. found it. Uh, get, so get, a little, one less training step with them because they already have the natural alert built in. Nice. Yes. And think about that. Uh, your best case with Journey, because I want to go through all your dogs, to be honest with you. And so far, I love your names. Uh, between your current dog, and we'll get to that, and Journey, I just uh, I just love uh, so far your names. I'm kind of excited to get to the other two. But Well, well I'll, I'll go with that name because I always name my dogs with a purpose. And I got her as a puppy, didn't have a name. I went canoeing. I, my first assignment, I was in northern Indiana. Uh, Missinawal River ran through there, went canoeing one day and took the puppy with me. And, and at that time, the name of my kennel was Warden's Kennel. And uh, so all my dogs have wardens in the name. Uh-huh. So I'm like, all right, we're taking a journey on water. So her paper name was Warden's Sweetwater Journey uh, is how I come up with that name. As uh, far as cases, golly, with her, the list goes on. Um, yeah, 392 cases. That's incredible. I would say probably one of my most memorable ones. And every time I'm driving on I-64 headed towards Louisville, Kentucky, or that general area, um, I, my wife's like, here we go. Because I'll say, you remember the one time that I got called out? Uh, it was after Derby Day. Uh, one of the sheriff's departments got into, well, they got a call for a domestic at one of the rest areas along the interstate. Uh, that led to a pursuit uh, where the suspects hit stop, stop sticks and then fled on foot in Crawford County. Uh, they called me and said, hey, can you come track these guys? We have a stolen vehicle. Four guys bailed the vehicle and we found two stolen guns in the vehicle. So I'm like, yep, I will head there. I'm going to date myself here. I just let the dispatch know I had a popper Papa pager on. And if it goes off, I terminate track and I'm heading to the hospital. And they're like, that's fine. So, <laughs> so I respond to the call. Well, I get there. There's basically one unit still on scene. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to track four suspects that have a stolen car and two stolen guns in the vehicle. Who knows what else they have? Mm. So I started calling this call came in at about 4.30 in the morning, roughly. So I started calling some of our guys uh, and some state troopers. So we actually waited until daylight to run this track. To make a long story short, seven miles later, wow. we apprehended all four suspects. Uh, and two of them were wanted for murder. 
uh, in East St. Louis. So end up being a uh, exhausting track. Uh, we were right on their tail numerous times. They even tried to evade us by going up rock walls and cliffs that we had to, to navigate around and pick up the track back on top. But it was super memorable to say the least. Right. And for those that don't know tracks, it's time and distance usually. So the longer the track, the harder the track, and the longer the track, the harder the track. So leaving it till the morning and then a seven-mile track, that, that, that's very, very impressive for any canine. Uh, so that, that, that's unbelievable. Um, so that, 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 that's pretty good. They stayed in the woods the whole time. That was kind of nice because sometimes you get to that tarred road and then you lose the track there. Yes, it was um, where this inter- where this was at along the interstate. Um, it's rug- well rugged terrain for Indiana's standards, and the interstate, the eastbound westbound lanes are divided by let's just say a quarter mile. The way that they you know they get separated, so we end up crossing the interstate either eastbound or westbound. I'm wanting to say six different times during that track, they would go from the north side of the interstate, go back into the median, to the south side, back into the median. And again, the median is all wooded and actually has a creek through it because uh, they done the old theory running through water. All yeah. you do is get wet. The dog can still track you yeah. if you're running through water. Um, and basically, at one of the state troopers was uh, very observant. He's seen the same car with Missouri tags pass him four different times. And he finally stopped the car and was like, hey, we know what you're doing. If I see you again, you know, your guys are going to be in trouble. And it turns out it was the four suspects girlfriends that they got into the altercation with at the rest area that was trying to pick him up. So that's why they kept hanging so close to the interstate. They were in communications, you know, with them, yeah. you know, trying to get picked up. So it was a good case, you know, good joint effort for all the agencies involved yeah. on that particular case. Yeah, that sounds like a great apprehension. Uh, unbelievable. So, wow, that, w- that was great. And, and just going across different types of terrain, you know, crossing the inst- interstate is different. Uh, when you, for some dogs, it, it becomes almost impossible. And other dogs, you know, hard tracking is that they get used to it. So, but the different types of terrain hold scent differently. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So, and I'm sure you train consistently in different types of terrain. Yes, we do. Yeah. So it's, uh, and it's hard to believe because, you know, sometimes game wardens dogs are mostly in the woods and stuff. And that sometimes becomes tricky when you hit concrete or asphalt. But if you train that way, the dog doesn't even phase them. It just continues on. Um, and it depends. And we do hard surface tracking, you know, even though, you know, a lot of times we're tracking, you know, in the rural environment, part of our canine school is towards the, well, we start hard surface early in training, but towards the end of school, we take them right in to city tracking, which in my area, it's more town tracking, yeah. but to where people are walking on sidewalks, you know, where you're cutting down alleys, uh, past dogs and pens, loose cats, you know, all those type of distractions, yes. you know, need to be 
encounter during training. That way you can do it in the field. Right. Uh, you know, when, when it's necessary. Absolutely. And continuous training too, because that's not something you do initially, you get certified. You got to continuously train and keep them up to that level because let's face it, a professional athlete, if he sits at home too, too long, he's, not, he's no longer professional. He has to stay in that tip-top conditioning, and that's a lot of training that goes with it. And the same with canines and their handlers too. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I don't think people understand how much work it is. It's, it's a great resource. It's a great partner, but canine handlers work their butts off, uh, training, working, and it just, you bring them home, it, it's 24-7, and all of the guys love it. Love it, because you have to yeah. love it to do it. So it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, so your second dog, we go to Journey, and then what's the second dog? Second dog was Voyage. Um, Voyage another canoe had... Trip? Another canoe, another canoe trip? No, no, it was not. I, I guess <laughs> Voyage ended up being more of a play on, on the name Journey, I guess. Uh, you know, because these dogs do, in this case, I guess I look at it, you know, these dogs take you on a voyage. Uh, each time you deploy them, there's, there's something new. Voyage actually had kind of a short career. Um, she'd done great through all of her initial training. Uh, she was a mixed breed. She was a lab golden retriever mix uh basically she looked like a black flat coated retriever if anyone's familiar with the flat coat you know or a black golden retriever if you want to put it in that form uh she was actually a rescue dog um she had a short career I, she worked with me for three well we'll say three and a half years um and then as it turns out the reason she was probably not working as well is she ended up having a medical issue. She actually would have had a short career anyway. She actually uh, passed away about a year and a half after I, for lack of a better term, fired her. Um, <laughs> so that may have been why she was was slowing down with her work. But she had some great cases too. Um, probably the most memorable, and the track was nothing impressive. It was probably only 250 yards. Um, it was Christmas Eve get a call out at about, I want to say it was definitely dark, 9, 9.30 on Christmas Eve of a, a subject that had just taken a great number of pills in an attempt to end his life and took off out the back door and no one could find him. Uh, so they call me. I go there, start the track at the back door, go about 250 yards or so along a field edge, go into a thicket, and there he was, passed out, laying on the ground. Um, temperature I'm wanting to say was eight degrees. Mm. Um, so make a long story short, um, you know, he still had a lot of the pills in his mouth when we were trying to wake him up. Pills just kept coming out and coming out. Um, uh, mm. but got into the ambulance, uh, bottom line basically was credited with saving his life because no if the pills didn't get him, he would succumb to hypothermia. Matter of fact, he was already in stage two hypothermia. It took them quite some time to get an IV started. Wow. Life-saving track. Yes. Yeah, for- and again, nothing impressive about the track, 250 yards, but, uh, but still that guy's still alive today, you know, because of that. Yeah. Very short career, but very worthy career to save somebody's life. So that's, 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 that's yes. definitely a, a good one for voyage. So, uh, Third dog. Third dog um, was Fury. Fury actually just <laughs> passed away last November. Uh, he he actually name. retired. 
last July, so he had a short retirement from July to November. Uh, Fury was interesting. Uh, we He was found at the Lake County, Indiana Animal Shelter, so right up by Lake Michigan, Chicagoland area, mm-hmm. uh, is where we found him. And his original name was Finnegan, or Finn for short. Uh, when I got this dog, the only history we knew on him was he was bought as a puppy, went to the animal shelter at about six months, was adopted out three or four months later, the dog was back at the same animal shelter. Hmm. So obviously since it went through two homes, there were some issues there. Uh, not to mention he was a huge dog. He was about 101 pounds and the tallest, longest lab I've ever seen in my life. Um, but I was working in, in the garage one day doing some obedience work prior to our canine school. And he was making me furious. And <laughs> so I'm like, okay, all right. I'm tired of calling you Finn. Your name now is Fury. <laughs> Short for Furious. <laughs> so, so that's, that's kind of how his name uh, came about. So, uh, but, but he, he was a good dog. He was big. You know, it's, it's one thing to be following a, 50, 60 pound female lab on a track, as opposed to a hundred pound male that his paws were the size of, of softballs. You know, when he would get going, he wanted to go. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Can you give us one of his uh, best cases? Um, boy, I'll have to think about some of Fury's. Uh, they kind of all blend, don't they? They, they actually do. Yeah. Fury with with Fury, we started adding ginseng detection to to all of our dogs. Neat. And so a lot of his and I don't want to say they're great cases, but to me, when you catch the ginseng diggers in the act or you find their hidden stash, yeah, you know, to me that's that's a good case. And you know, so since we added ginseng to all of our dogs, you know, his detection of ginseng and finding where guys stashed it, you know, a lot of times they come out of the woods. No, I was just digging yellow root. And they, if they're digging out of season or without permission, they'll come out with their yellow root, which is legal, unregulated, other than you need landowner permission. Uh, we're ginseng. We have obviously a season, and you can. It's illegal to dig on state or federal property. So, so a lot of his cases are going back in and can, finding. Can we go in a little into the ginseng? Can we talk a little bit about the ginseng? This is the first time ginseng's been brought up on the Warden's Watch, so I kind of want to go into it, a case people, because we have a little bit in the Northeast, but not a lot. Uh, you guys in Ohio seem to really focus in on it. West Virginia, that seems to you know, be your niche, and uh, poaching ginseng uh, seems to be a problem around there. Yes, uh, southern, southern Indiana especially, uh, just because of our terrain and all the hardwood forest we have. Mm-hmm. Not that we don't have ginseng in northern Indiana. We do. They just don't have nearly the amount of timber we have in southern Indiana. Uh, but, you know, ginseng, for those that don't know, is actually a plant. Uh, the root is is what they're after. You know, in any time you put a value on, well, anything, but we'll say wildlife in particular, yes. you put a value on it, people are going to exploit the resource to make money for themselves. And so here in Southern Indiana, you know, there's a, a bunch of officers that take it super serious. You know, we want to catch the root digger, uh, you know, going in on someone's property and stealing ginseng, in my opinion, is no different than someone breaking in my house and stealing my TV. You know, they're still stealing the resource. 
the reason it's regulated, one, because of money, um, but the way that it reproduces with the berries, that's why there's a season in Indiana. It starts September 1st. Most other Midwest states are right in that ballpark also. So they want the berries to ripen, fall off before you know you harvest the root. That way that one plant is at least reproducing. Mm-hmm. But sense. ginseng with the value, of course, most of the ginseng is shipped overseas. Uh, primarily China would be the largest buyer of ginseng. Uh, but there's quite the market. Just a handful of years ago, it was over $900 a pound. Wow. And very difficult to cultivate and grow, correct? That's why. Yes, there is cultivated ginseng, but that's not what they want because it does. the root doesn't have the potency of wild-grown ginseng. Okay. Huh. That, that's very interesting. And so you train dogs into detecting ginseng because, like you said, yes. they stash it, they hide it, they... And what's yellow root? That's the first time I've been exposed to yellow root. Uh, yellow root, uh, more prolific than ginseng. When you come across yellow root, uh, you know, they use the yellow root about the same, for the same purposes of ginseng. You know, it's in your sports drinks, energy drinks, and so on. But yellow root is more prolific. It spreads from root to root. Uh, so when you run across a patch of yellow root, it can cover the whole side of a hill or something like that. Gotcha. Again, we don't regulate it. Um, there's no season. Again, you still need landowner permission and it's still illegal to dig on state or federal property. Uh, but value is so much less. Um, usually dried yellow root, $35 a pound, roughly. And it's a lot of work to get a pound of yellow root at that rate. Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard to get. It's a lot of work to get a pound of either. But okay. yeah, yellow root, Again, there's a lot more of it, so you can, but it's a lot of digging because it's such a smaller, fibrous type root. Hmm. Interesting. You've given me an education today, Jeff, so I appreciate that. <laughs> well, so, so yeah, Fury and ginseng detection. Yeah, and, and he had a lot of uh, good tracks. You know, a lot of them just weren't the big criminal tracks that, uh, that stick out in your mind. Mm-hmm. But quite a few ginseng apprehensions or locations or... Yes. Uh, you know, one uh, guy comes out of the woods, another officer called me. I get there as the people he called me originally just to go track these guys. Uh, he knew one of them actually had an arrest warrant. Well, they come out with nothing, no digging tools, nothing. Just said they were out deer scouting. It only took me about 30 seconds to do an off lead article recovery search to where Boom, there's his digging tool. There's his stash of ginseng, which was prior to season. Uh, obviously, this guy did not have permission to be where he was at either. You know, so just, uh, you know, a quick find. That officer, you know, had he not called me, would he have went in and found it? I would say probably not. Uh, but even if he did, it may have took him hours and hours, and it took me less than 10 minutes, or Fury less than 10 minutes, to to locate the evidence of the crime. Mm. Yeah, no. And again, the dogs are so, uh, there's such a catalyst to, to, to doing your job. Think of how long a human takes to find that. And that officer called you in probably because he couldn't find it. Uh, right. To throw the canine out there, 30 seconds later, you have evidence. Uh, just, uh, right. just, yeah, what a benefit. And always on our cases, I would try to call in dogs because I know their value. Uh, you know, we talked about Bill Boudreaux had to drive through three hours one time just to run a track for me and happy to do it. 
I've never seen a canine ha- handler show up mad that they could, that you got called. They're always happy to run their dog, to, to work their dog. Oh. Well, just you mentioned the amount of time training. We spend all that time icing on the cake. Uh, I've always said it's the greatest sport on earth, you know, and I, obviously you mentioned my wall, big hunter, big fisherman. Um, and, but there's no greater feeling the dog that you trained goes out and makes the case that otherwise wouldn't have happened. You know, there's no other bigger adrenaline rush that I know of, especially when it comes to tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Or evidence location. You know, we talked about Sean Cronsberry and he talks about the, the, the Turkey that was buried that no one would have ever found without that canine, which is, uh, yeah. is so true. I mean, they, people can hide stuff and you just can't find it, but that smell is there and that dog is just, on it they don't leave they don't understand how much scent they leave when they bury something or try to hide something in a certain area by disturbing the yeah. the, the, the ground and everything else it's just that it's so good for a dog where we would walk right by it yes uh, uh priceless so we're, we're we're getting up to your fourth dog here your current dog correct that's correct so we've spent uh, uh, quite a quite a long time now for you too we're, we're over 20 years aren't we uh with those three <laughs> Yes, yes, we are. Mm. Uh, Fourth dog who is currently in training. She actually started training last year uh, in our 14th canine school. Uh, But during a break, uh, she tore her CCL. Uh. So in human terms, she tore her ACL. Mm. Uh, Had to have surgery. So she is actually in our current canine school. We're in a a break right now. But she's in our current canine school. Uh, Her name is Coda. And the way her name came about is I wanted a name that meant this is my last one. Uh, (laughs) Nothing like making a statement. On a closed Facebook group, I had came up with five names and I let other natural resources or fish and wildlife canine handlers vote to pick my name. Uh, The choices were CODA, which basically means the last in a long series of events. Um, finale, embers, and I can't remember the other names, but Coda won out. Uh, Coda won out as the name to choose, and it was actually one of my favorites. Finale was maybe my favorite, but we, me and my wife and my youngest son, who still lives at the house, you know, decided, hey, we will go with whatever name they decide. But Coda won hands down as as the name to choose. Mm. And like she is currently in training, so no no cases you have to report of, but I'm certain uh she is going to to make some good ones. Mm. She reminds me a lot of my first partner journey. She's a small uh female black lab. Nice. Yeah. And and through your canine experiences, you you talk about trying starting the training schools. Let's talk about the training schools, uh, other states involvement. Uh, again, I got to believe that you kind of spearheaded that. Yeah. I, well, let me back up a little bit. When I was researching the States, um, again, you know, when we first started, there was only about nine States with the program or at least an official program, Mm -hmm. you know, because California was running, uh, it wasn't official program. They didn't start officially, I think till 2005. But during that research, I was like, Hey, you know, the floppy ear dog is what will fly with our department. And Florida had what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we kind of modeled our program after Florida. 
me and Scotty Wilson, who ended up retiring as our colonel, were the first two handlers selected. We went to Florida in 1997 to attend uh their school, which at the time Florida was allowing other states to come. So during that school in 1997, then it was called the Florida Game and Fish Commission. Um, but we went down there, uh, South Carolina had three handlers there, Indiana had two, and then I believe there was three Florida officers going through the school with us. Well, once we come back, we decided, okay, we can do this training on our own. So we trained, we had two schools that for just Indiana end up getting a call from Kentucky one day. It's like, Hey, you know, can you train us? You know, Florida's not having a school for a few years. I'm like, Hey, I will try it. So I sent through the request and our department's like, Hey, Florida, let us come to their training for free. Let's pass it on. So, so in 2002, uh, three Kentucky handlers came up and trained in Indiana. And from there, it just started growing. We're into our 15th school. Nice. Eight different states have come here to start our start their program. Nice. Um, so, you know, it, it has grown. And actually, with this current school, we've actually even had schools like for the Kentucky one, where Indiana wasn't even part of the school. Uh, we had another one in 03. That's when Kansas Game Warden started their program. Uh, just last last year, there was no two years ago, there was no Indiana handler in the school. Um, you know, we just trained uh, Oregon State Police Fish and Wildlife Division, Utah. Uh, you know, we're we're there in, in Virginia. We're there in attendance. So, nice. so our department has graciously opened the doors to let other states come and and start their canine program and or continue their program. Nice. That's that's huge. A it keeps you sharp as a trainer and and just opening those doors to conservation protection really nationwide. And into Canada, I'm sure if Canada wanted to come down, you'd open your arms to them as well. Absolutely. And and actually, there's a chance. Um, well, actually, we tried to get it through this year, but because of COVID and logistics, uh, passports and so on, our next school actually may contain uh, two wildlife rangers from South Laguana National Park in Zambia, Africa. Awesome. Uh, to come over and they'll be trained in basically tracking down poachers in the park, but more specifically rhino poachers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they be detect things like, uh, you know, rhino horn, elephant ivory and so on. So it's, it's definitely grown from, you know, the eight States that have attended so far to it, it may have an international feel. Yeah. My hat's off to you and your administration. Cause that's a commitment and it's a commitment for wildlife conservation enforcement. That's uh, just, and it's what I think we all want to do. You know, it doesn't matter what uniform you wear or where you wear it. Uh, we should support each other and, and make that big, uh, make that big plunge and make a difference in other places as well as our own, which uh, man, thank I, you, Indiana. That's, that's, that's huge. I, I think to, to use your knowledge and your training um, and like I said, it keeps you sharp as a tack too, because if you're constantly doing schools as a trainer, you don't want to take two years off in training. Right, right. Well, and it keeps me in shape. You know, sometimes I get a little beat up like a pulled calf <laughs> this year, <laughs> a shoulder surgery a few years ago, all canine related, but, but it does, it does keep me motivated and in shape. And one thing that's kind of overlooked with the training too is, is the lifelong friendships, you know, um, mm. 
you know, these other states that come, as well as Indiana officers, you know, it's you spend nine weeks in training together um, and however many hours a day because, you know, on the clock, anywhere from eight to 10 hours of training. But then we go down, we GoPro videotape most of the training. We go down and critique. So you're hanging out after hours, um, you know, so so the training, you know, obviously we take it serious, but but the camaraderie in the evening, you know, making lifelong lifetime long friends is is part of it too, which is really neat. Mm, yeah, no, I would I would agree, and it seems like we're all cut from the same cloth when you go to a game warden gathering. It's like going home, going to family. Uh, we can all talk to each other. We all have similar stories, and we all like to hear them. And yeah, it's 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 a joy. Uh, that's one thing I hope this next generation of game wardens don't lose because I'm starting to see that, that, the you know, and they're not joining the, the associations, the benevolent associations, the, the glue that has kept us glued together for so long. I just hope that they can see the value in that. And, uh, and once they get together, they're just like we are. So, um, just yep. getting them out there and experiencing that. Oh. Yes. That's my plug for agreed. There's a lot of uh, young wardens that listen to this podcast, so that's my plug to them. Uh, and I always try to get them out there and motivated and, and engaged in associations, just like the one you started, because it's so important to have people to to rely on. I'm sure that people call you all the time and, and bounce things off of you for your opinions because they have that relationship with you, whether they've been through a training or whether they're part of the association. And that that's what it's all about. It's about you know, handing our knowledge on to the next generation of game warden. And it's about learning from them too. That's, <laughs> I, I lo- used to love when new game wardens came in because some of them would crack poachers that I have been trying to crack for like 15 years and they just did it a different way. And I'm, I, and they'd ask me, how do I go about this? And I'm like, you know what? I want you to figure out how you would go about it. I don't want to tell you because if you do it the same way I've done it for 15 years, you may not catch that guy. Take a different stance. Look at it a different way. Take that problem on. And they were really effective at doing that. I'd come in in the end and try to help them out. Or if I saw they were going down a road that I didn't want them to go to, guide them the other way. But there was, there was so much value in learning from them as well, especially with technology. I'm learning that. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. They can do all the Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Where I can't do all that stuff. That's right. That's right. So let's talk about this association because Conservation Canine Officers Association is fairly new, isn't it? It is. Um, I was contacted um, back early in January of, of 2019 um, from Lauren Went, uh, who at that time was a current Washington State uh, game agent. And uh, she had made contact or had been contacted by Working Dogs for Conservation, and they had some funds that they wanted to start an association between the state's fish and wildlife agencies. Um, So that kind of snowballed. We started working, and in August of 
2019, we had our first founding conference, so to speak, uh, which was pretty well attended. 19, at that time, there was only 29 states with the program, but uh, we had 19 representatives from from Fish and Wildlife Agency's canine programs, uh, I think 43 officers. Uh, we kind of had our founding meeting, uh, which, which went really well. Uh, we elected the founding board and we've moved on from there. We've actually had a couple conferences scheduled and postponed uh, due to the COVID world we live in right now. Uh, but we have progressed. We are actually an official association now and have our 501c6 status. Uh, we're incorporated out of the state of Texas, and we're moving forward. We actually just did a virtual workshop last week, which was attended by, oh, part of the canine school. So we had Missouri and Virginia there and several Indiana handlers, and then rest of the nation uh, are members that joined the Conservation Canine Officers Association, watched it via Zoom, as we're doing right now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, across the nation. So in basically one week, uh, we went from no membership to, I checked this morning, we're up to 112 members of the CCOA. And to put that in perspective, there's only, if you count Canada uh, conservation officers, there's only 220 fish and wildlife officers, canine handlers in North America. Wow. So over half have joined CCOA up to this date. So, so we're getting up and running. That That's impressive, Jeff. Those numbers are impressive for such a short time. And uh, the working dog for conservation, uh, what a force they have built. I mean, to get you guys organized and to rely on each other, to, to, to get your expertise working together, uh, that's probably the best conservation force with dogs <laughs> that, that's ever been you know, strategically developed. Uh, my hat's off to them for, for, for understanding the, the problem and then uh, ask, reaching out to you guys to, to form this association because uh, that's, that's going to be, in the future, I, I can see you guys doing great things. Um, you yes. Know, as a group. Without their support, we would probably still be 31 individual states doing our own thing. Yeah. You know, this is helping bring professionalism, mm. professionalism you know, to – to all of our teams, you know, some states, you know, are ahead of others, some are behind, you know, the ultimate goal is we'll be a, you know, a certifying body, you know, to, to certify states so they don't have to go out and pay, name another organization, it doesn't matter. But, you know, a lot of our dogs are doing fish and game detection, where you're being judged by someone that's only used to doing narcotics or explosives, mm -hmm. for example. You know, so why not be judged on someone that knows how we work and what we do? You know, so that's one of the ultimate goals. And that's what a lot of our members want is us to become a certifying body, um, Makes sense. you know, for court purposes. Yeah, because right now a lot of us are relying on, you know, whether it's state police agencies. Um, yeah, there, there's there's no one out there uh, certifying conservation dogs. Uh, is there besides other state agencies? Uh, not well. There's other associations, uh, yeah, like National right. Canine Association, United States Police Canine Association. Right. So there's a lot out there, and most of them do have wildlife detection now because mm -hmm. they don't want to exclude us. Um, but then again, they don't. They're not familiar with the way we work, or you know, wildlife is a little bit different 
wildlife is not always illegal, depending on what it is, Correct. to where in most states, narcotics are always illegal. You know, so it's it's a little different way that we work. So why not have an association that's built for us? Mm-hmm. That makes total sense to me. Nope, that that's great. So, um, yeah, so you're in currently in a program right now. You're in between a little break, but you've already done some training. How many dogs do you have currently enrolled in, in this uh, certification process? Uh, we have nine, nine dogs in this, this school, um, which is actually the Canine Fury Memorial School. We actually started a few years ago. We, we named the school after the last Indiana dog to pass, you know, that, you know, either passed why it was in its career or in this case, Fury had just recently retired. But we have nine handlers, which includes myself. Uh, we have five from Missouri. This is their first. They just started their program. So when yeah. they graduate May 14th, uh, Missouri will be the 31st state to have a canine program. Mm. And we have one officer from Virginia, one officer from Utah, and one officer from Kansas in this current school. And then, again, myself. Nice. Nice. So well, well represented and, you know, fundamentally starting Missouri's program. Yes. And several other states, like say, have come here to start Idaho. Um, you know, they came here back in 2011 with the pilot program. Uh, Jim Sterling was successful making cases in Idaho. Uh, a few years later, boom, Idaho decides to expand. So they, they add two more dogs. Uh, those dogs start making cases, boom, now they're up to four. Uh, um, so it's, you know, states, once they start, they realize, how did we live without these, this program? And, you know, it just continues. Uh, Kansas, we've had 15 schools and Kansas game wardens have been part of 11 of them. Wow. You know, basically dog Kansas has, you know, has came through Indiana. That's great. That's great. How many trainers do you have during the school? Uh, it depends on the size of the school, but not knowing when I'm going to hang up my canine shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, the last five schools I've had, for lack of a better term, an assistant canine coordinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lance Labonte here in Indiana has been part of the last five schools. So there's no doubt in my mind, you know, once I retire, it's going to be in good hands because he's been part of, again, the last five schools. So he's seen a lot of dogs, a uh, lot of mistakes, how to correct those mistakes. Uh, and when I say mistakes, dog training is easy. Training the human end of the lead mm-hmm. is where, yes. where the trainer comes in. <laughs> okay. So, so usually it's just me and him, uh, this year, since I pulled my calf muscle week one of this school, <laughs> I, I, I am back to running now, but, uh, I've had some of our other handlers come in and help fill in, uh, cause that's one thing we run behind these handlers on every track that way we're seeing it in person and to give them instantaneous, you know, uh, advice, you know, wow. just for an example, a new handler doesn't know what they don't know. So I always tell them, if you hear me say, good boy, good girl, you should be saying it also, you know, that way their timing is getting better and the rewarding what we want rewarded, right. you know, type thing. And so this this year I've had some other guys come in and help run behind, 
you know, I, these I just dogs. want to mention one thing. If you noticed uh, when Jeff said good boy or good girl, his tone changes. So it gets a little higher pitch. So in dog training, that's, you know, they, it gets the dog excited. It gets that. So for all my 4-H kids that are going to listen to this podcast, you know, that that's a good positive reinforcement. And he did it perfectly by bringing his, you know, his voice up a little higher pitch so the dog gets gets a little excited. So um, so continue, continue on, but I like to throw those little tidbits in for A, for our listeners, and B, for my the 4-H dog clubs that, uh, you know, certainly as a leader, uh, I'm hoping some of my uh, students and uh, the club members are listening. So. I'm sure they will be, especially if you make a part of an assignment like you did back in, when you did the 4-H uh, yes. podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's one well, way to get I listeners, Jeff, is to uh, assign it. <laughs> that is one way to boost uh, viewership, yeah, our ab- listenership. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, and another thing I wanted to mention that I, I just love that a, a lot I don't see a lot of is you're training your replacement. So, and that takes a, it takes a lot of ego to, off your plate to do that. Cause it's, it's hard to know that someday you're going to be gone and someone's going to fill those shoes or try to fill those shoes or, or fill them better. Um, but train your replacements. I, I just, I can't, as a supervisor, you need to be training your replacements, whether you're a Lieutenant, whether you're a Sergeant, whether you're just a senior officer, uh, you gotta, you gotta instill this in anything and train your replacements. And you said that perfectly. Um, Oh. And I, I would thank Indiana's administration for that too, you know, cause it, it, it does cost Indiana a little bit of money to, to have him down. You know, obviously mm-hmm. I hold the training schools where I live, so I get to come home and sleep <laughs> in my own bed. Tonight. <laughs> well, he doesn't, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got to stay, he's got to stay in lodge, you know, with the handlers that are in the training, mm-hmm. um, you know, so hats off to him and his family, you know, for being allowed to come down here, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, to spend nine weeks away from home. He does yeah. get to go home on weekends. So it's not a straight nine weeks where these out of state guys, you know, mm. they, when they get here, they're here for three weeks. Mm. So, you know, being a canine handler, you know, we can't forget the spouses and families that sacrifice Absolutely. also, you know, the, the 3 a.m. call out. And so you go make the case, you get home at 5 a.m., let's just say, well, you got to tell someone. So what do you do? You wake up <laughs> wife and tell her their whole story. <laughs> so, that's right. so the family obviously makes sacrifices. And of course that's with any warden, yeah. but the call out ratio for canine handlers is, is pretty high, you know, typically. So, you know, the, the families, you know, are a big part of it. Absolutely. And those dogs become part of the family too. Yes, absolutely. And that's an important aspect of it as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, how about the facility you guys use? Because that, you know, when you when you talk about staying at a lodge, and then I'm like, well, where they're training somewhere, they're housing those dogs somewhere. Uh, do the dogs stay at the lodge? Yeah, we actually it's it's a private business, but they actually stay in cabins, uh, which makes it really nice uh, for the handlers because they have a kitchen, two bedrooms, nice. you know, so they don't have to go out to eat every night. You know, they can cook right there at the cabin, and you know. Uh, I won't get into the cooking, but a lot of people come here and was like, all right, I'm going to do all this walking and running. I'm going to lose weight. But when you get yeah. five, eight, 10 game wardens together and they bring their smokers and they bring their grills, yeah, losing weight is not always an option, mm. you know, because everyone wants to, Hey, you got to try my antelope. You got to try my elk steaks. <laughs> nice. Turns into a competition. 
competition a lot of times, but they actually stay in these cabins. Uh, most of our training is done on one of our uh, DNR properties. Uh, it's Patoka Reservoir. It's the largest state property, land and water combined, um, that the Department of Natural Resources owns. You know, so we have all kinds of training area. It, it is it is really set up perfectly for doing a canine school. They have the buildings uh, for when we start detection. They have the open fields. Obviously, we have all the woods to track in. So it's just a really neat setup, all right within a 10-mile radius of where everything happens. So it, it is a nice facility. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's important to have all those different aspects of training, water, you know, trails, uh, hardwood, softwood. Uh, do you do water training? Do you take them out in the boat for detection at all? Get them used to the boat or I, is that part of it? No, uh, you know, we sometimes incorporate a boat ride because obviously if we're going to be out working waterfowl hunters, the dog needs to get from one place to another to check the waterfowl hunters. Um, but we're not training human remains detection dogs. Uh, you know, so there's really not much searching out of the boat. Now we will actually incorporate searching a boat, but not necessarily working out of it. Okay. And we just lost a canine handler in Ohio, Jason Lagore. And uh, I don't know, you guys had a relationship. I know you talked a lot, communicated a lot. What struck me is the, just the, the social media posts about him just said so much and, um, you know, what a devastation it was to everybody that know, knew him and everybody that worked for him. And I just want to give him a little tribute, and you can probably speak to that better than I can on a canine podcast that Jason's name yeah, should certainly come up. Yes, a absolutely. I had talked to uh, Jason Lagore. We spent numerous hours on the phone, especially when Ohio's DNR was starting their fish and wildlife canine program. He had never done wildlife detection training, so we talked in depth. I never met Jason Lagore in person. Uh, however, like I say, I felt I knew him, knew him fairly well just by phone conversations. And a lot of our conversation was obviously dog stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a loss. You know, he was my go-to guy when someone would call me from another state. It was like, hey, we want information on training a human remains detection dog or an HRD dog. Um I was like, I got just your guy, you know, and I would, I would send him Jason Lagore's contact info and not only just in the fish and wildlife area, you know, he had people all around the search and rescue uh, arena call him mm -hmm. about his training and how he does human remains detection. So it, it definitely was a sudden loss and there's no doubt in my mind, you know, he would have been a very active member in the CCOA. Mm. So so it was was a tragic loss whenever one of their uh, fish and wildlife handlers called me that night. Well, actually, I kind of feel bad. He texted me and asked if I was still awake. I wasn't. I answered him first thing in the morning at like 540, and my phone immediately rings, and he told me that. And he goes, I just wanted you to know before I posted it on Facebook. And it was it was quite the shock, for sure. Yeah. No, it was uh... – and just like I said, I read one of the posts, and uh, it was from just a, a police officer, not a conservation officer, but the, the heartfelt post. Uh, it tore my heart out, and it just showed me what a great individual Jason Lagore was and what an impact he especially had on the canine programs uh, in that area around the nation. So it's, it's uh, 
So certainly wanted to bring his name up during, you know, what has become a canine uh, podcast. As much as uh, Indiana, you're my first Indiana game warden. I'm excited about that, but it's certainly uh, the, the, the canine thing is, has, has rung really true and, and all the work you're doing there. So anything to wrap it up? I mean, I always say this is as much your podcast as my podcast. Uh, I don't know if I've missed anything uh, that you wanted to talk about. We talked about the new association. At some point, uh, people are going to be able to donate to you, aren't they? Um, that, that's always huge. Yeah, I, I would encourage uh, your listeners and or viewers, uh, if they're on your Patreon account, to go to Conservation Canine Officers Association on Facebook and at least like and follow the page. Uh, you know, it's not a you're not allowed to post on the page, but you are allowed to to like uh, and leave comments mm-hmm. and so on on the different posts. Uh, you know, we're a fledgling association. And eventually, if we want to get to be the certifying body, our goal is to make it at no cost or low cost to all the states. You know, obviously, if we become a certifying body, we have to send certified uh, judges or certifiers, whatever you want to title you want to give them. And that would require travel. But we want to make that free or at least low to no cost, you know, and obviously that takes funds. You know, so eventually, you know, we're going to have a a gift button button on that page to where you can go and donate one dollar, two dollars, five dollars, twenty dollars, you know, whatever. Uh, Right now, you know, the page we just started it uh, last December, I do believe. Uh, So it's it's fledgling. I think we only have four, maybe five hundred followers. I haven't checked recently, but we want to get that out there. We actually share posts. if we see it from a department's page, we try to share it, you know, mm-hmm. but right now it's just a couple of us that are kind of trying to look and find stuff. But, you know, just recently, uh, I think two posts down, we looked at it earlier, was a New Hampshire post, was, uh, their yeah. new canine and their handler. Yeah, Kane St. Pierre so, with his new dog, Winnie. So, so we, yeah, so we try to share, you know, what's going on all around the nation, you know, in the canine world. Mm. No, I, I think that that's a great thing to, to do for sure. Uh, get that information out there. And people seem to love dogs. And what a lot of people don't understand, fish and game agencies nationwide are usually funded through hunting and fishing licenses. So they're a self-funded agency. So a lot of these dog programs, I know uh, what Indiana's is and New Hampshire's is, it's all donations. The New Hampshire Wildlife mm-hmm. Heritage Foundation is the nonprofit partner for our canine officers they get donations and they provide the stuff the the material the dog everything with canines uh west reed with uh providing the dogs for us it's all donations and it wouldn't be possible without them because our funding is tight because it's based on hunting and fishing licenses and other fees uh and i'm indiana i believe is the same exact way right jeff yeah we've went back and forth from department funded to donations or at least donations helping get the extra wish list stuff. Um, but yeah, currently right now, as much as possible, you know, we are operating on donations because of, of tight budgets. Mm-hmm. And then obviously with COVID, a lot of state budgets even got tighter, mm-hmm. you know, so currently right now, uh, most of Indiana's program is operating on donation funds. Right. And the state does pay the officer's salary, so the state has, you know, a skin in the game. 
so to speak. So I'm, um, you know, but most of it is possible through donations and that, that that's just a great thing that we can do that, but it would be, you know, great if, if there was some help out there too. If, uh, if you guys had some help right. and could, you know, provide, uh, resources for states that had even less of a less of funds to do this program so because it's it's, it's important like we said at the beginning just for the public relations factor you, you bail out and you got coda with you uh kids uh light up don't they jeff they big smiles on their face they want to pat the dog they want to interact with the dog um every age i want to pat the dog <laughs> Although I will say, as 4-H members, you should uh, ask first if you can pat the dog. That's that's <laughs> that is canine uh, etiquette. Uh, you just don't go pat the dog. You always ask the the owner, the handler, if you can pat the dog because some dogs have histories. <laughs> you know, journey was a long time ago, but I'll still be pumping gas somewhere or something, and someone will come up uh, who's an adult now. They're like, I remember when you brought. They won't remember my name, but they're like, I remember in third grade, you brought Journey to our classroom and they still remember her name um, and and so on. So you had that impact, you know, they were in third grade. Now they're 22 years old or however old, and they still remember the dog's name. You know, that's dogs leave an impact on, on people. Yep. And certainly every one of our dogs has left an impact on us. Jeff, thanks so much for joining Warden's Watch. I appreciate your, you know, your time of serving the people of Indiana in conservation law enforcement as a conservation officer. And I really appreciate your dedication to canines, your canine training, and uh, branching out and training other states, being that resource. Uh, so important, so important. So thank you. Well, thank you uh, for, for this podcast. Uh, appreciate it. Great. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.